zero. So I'm super paranoid about it. This is crazy. What was that? What was your question? <laughs> oh my God, everyone's so smart here. So I burnt out before the industry burnout. Like, yeah, I don't know about that. It's magical. Uh, panic attacks. Welcome to the next episode of In China Between Meetings with your host, Marian Danka. I'm extremely excited today to have on the right Rasmus Rasmussen, who is the founder and CEO of Worms and uh, Labworks. We're going to talk a little bit more about the companies, about your projects. But first of all, thank you for joining me. Thank you. And uh, I know that you started your entrepreneurial journey back in the uh, late 90s, where we had the dot-com bubble. Mm -hmm. um, so can you please tell me what did you do, what were your early first projects, and what did you learn at that time? Uh, I actually started right before the dot-com bubble, because at the time internet was very empty. The web had hardly any content, it was just sort of business cards on, <clears throat> on the web, and all the interesting content was on the BBS as you dialed into a server. So this is mid-90s, and um, uh, it, you know, it was a time when people hardly used emails. They sent an email and then they called you to see that you got it, you know. The interesting part of the internet was really Usenet, and that's what I was doing, just chatting on, debating politics and stuff, and Usenet was essentially what Reddit is today. But, so my friends started a, a, a web company called Figurati, a web design company, and I thought it was silly, because it was like, why, why would you build business cards online for companies? And, uh, but then I, they <clears throat> asked me to help them with sales, so I moved into their office, and I started helping them with telesales, telemarketing, while I was writing paper for the university and I wanted to basically take that Usenet experience and put it on a website uh, and call it politicalwatch.com, which I still have, but I never launched it. So that was my, that was the start. And then the <clears throat> dot-com era started, you know, in the media, which went quite quick. So from nobody understood what internet was when I called them or met them, then people like, oh, it's, it's very interesting, you know. So the dot-com era started and everyone wanted to talk to you. So it was quite fascinating time um was that what was your question <laughs> you were, what was the the, the, com the first company so yeah, the company, was, uh, yeah yeah so digerati was a web design company uh and we helped them build you know websites uh just basic ones but i realized very quickly that my job as a salesperson was to educate people on what the internet was but primarily paint a vision you know because it was it was nothing it was just business cards like people looked at the website and like i don't know what did we do with this you know and and then i thought okay um, so I've got very good at visionary talk, like looking at trajectories, what's going to happen in your industry. I met all these interesting companies, everything, like media companies and uh, industry, industry companies and everything, right? And for everyone, I had to understand their business and I had to paint a vision for them. So that became my sales pitch thing to do. Um, but one of the things I looked at was communication. You know, we, like communication will be very important for sales. This is going to be a great sales tool. Uh, and I thought you should use your website as a business, like a PowerPoint essentially, but then you talk to your customer on the phone and then you both look at your website and then you can show stuff. But the, it was clunky that you couldn't show things. They had to like, oh, click on the right side of your screen. And then, you know, it, was, it felt like a clunky experience. So then I convinced a friend of mine who was a programmer 
to design a, a like a little application, web application, where you could change the content of the other person's web browser. You both you sent a URL to a person, and then they could look at it, and you could change the content of the browser, which now sounds very. Of course, you can do that. But back then, it was like, I mean, the internet was so static, so it was unheard of. Like you could do that. They were like, it's magical. You show this prototype to people. I remember I went to WorldCom, this now Finnish company. And I showed this prototype to them where I sat in one conference room. I called them up and they sat in the other room and I sent them a URL. And then they looked at it and I kept changing the content of that of the browser. And they're like, oh my God, it's like magic. you know. <laughs> and so that, that led to a pivot of the company, Digarati, to, be a, uh, uh, to do that, to create this, uh, this essentially early version of Skype. And uh, we got funded uh, and, uh, you know, the dot-com for me started and that was super exciting and but I had no it was my first job and I had no sense of life work balance so I sort of uh, got these huge what's it called I crashed I basically had um, uh, panic attacks so I kept wow. fainting and I couldn't it was so bad that eventually I couldn't go to work I couldn't leave my apartment so I had to quit my job so I was home That's for insane. three yeah I was home for three so I burnt out before the industry burnout. So my dot-com crash was like <laughs> in the middle idea. of it, yeah. And I just sort of had to quit the job and sit at home for three months. I played computer games for three months. And I just sort of, I need to stay another job, but it's not as crazy. So that was the big, but that company, they eventually sold it. Not, we didn't make money on it, but it still got three runs of funding, I think. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. What was the second one? Oh, then? Well, element? No, yeah. Well, first I was then recruited by this company called Knowit, which had been a booming IT company in the early 90s in Sweden, and it was a listed company. It was like the fastest growing IT company, and they, but they were a client-server company, consultants, so they had very good engineers, uh, and, but they had not worked on internet before. And they were now, from having been the darling of the business media, they were like, you guys are the old, old style, because now here comes the internet consultants, which was basically kind of bad programmers that were just good at talking, you know? Mm -hmm. Since I was exactly that, uh, a kind of bad programmer who was good at talking for, through my years of visionary talk to all these companies, they're like, oh, this guy could help us. So they hired me to help them uh, retain their customers before they lost them to the internet consultants and to get new customers. So basically combining their experience and engineering ability with my sort of visionary talk on how you can do things. So that was really cool. And then they quickly gave me my own company, so which I then called it fifth element mm -hmm. so i started a web design company for them that was essentially there to help them retain their customers and and get new ones and that was really cool because then i get to meet the biggest companies like big banks and insurance companies and we got uh, through and so i could apply that visionary talk to to them so i went into the banks and said you know your future is mobile payments and i went to the um, swedish radio and i said your future is radio on the mobile phone I, you know this the word podcast was used for other things back then but it was uh, which was funny because most of them were so conservative you know like the banks were like yeah, i don't know about that and the radio was like no we 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 don't believe in that we're, our future is that or something which is this idiotic electronic radio that had a little bmp picture on it that you could show uh, the 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 icon of the tv the radio show that was that they thought that was their future so that i learned a lot through these years from meeting with so many companies and learning also about technology. So that really was a very uh, educational start for me. Um, so that, yeah, so that Know It was then 
that was sort of the but the, the, I joined that company as the in the middle of the dot com crash. So one of the companies that I went and pitched to was the Swedish Postal Office, and I painted a future for them where they of course would go under with their letter, but they had a better future with e-commerce package delivery. And then I painted a picture of how they would be the fantastic logistics company. They would have a fleet of trucks moving up and down the street and just have guys running in and out of stores, picking up trash, leaving packages, picking up people's uh, checking luggage for the airport. And, you know, like that's what you guys do. Mm -hmm. Start it now. Invest in building this fantastic logistics machine and you're going to dominate the world. And they thought that was so cool. They presented it to the head of the postal office and they said, well, let's hire this guy. And I said, no. Because I believe in the future of IT industry, and a month later it started crashing. Mm. <laughs> so I was like, "Oh shit!" And that was an interesting. Era. What's your China story? I know you are one of those who've been here for for quite some time. So you yeah. came in 2003 yeah. in Shanghai. So what, what actually, was the motivation? Well, actually, to Hong Kong. So what happened was when so this the dot com crash started. I was very early to see it coming without realizing what it was because I looked in our spreadsheets are, are funnels, sales, sales tools, and saw that our incoming leads, qualified leads, were not very good. They were actually zero at, at the point, and that meant that six months later we would have no work with my little company. So I said, okay, man, we got to do something. So I fired a person, and I was called into the CEO of this company and said, we don't fire people here. We're building. We need to recruit, because it was all about building up. And I'm like, I showed her my sales funnel. I was like, I, I don't know what to do. This is, and she's like, okay, fine, you can fire the person. And sure enough, a month later, we had fired. We started firing 70% of the company. It just came down like so quick. It was unbelievable. And so, uh, and then <clears throat> a few months went past. I then hired a telecom telemarketing company to do market research on the on the future of our industry or what we could do. We called every single company in our market in the Greater Stockholm region and asked them, "What are your IT investment for the next 12 months?" And they said, "Zero. We have no investment in the next 12 months." And I'm like, this is crazy. We just fired 70% of the staff. We have a zero market in the next 12 months. There is nothing I can do. They're going to fire me next. So I'm like, I better get out of here. And so then I moved to Hong Kong. I was hired by a company called EF Education First. Mm -hmm. I, I was hired to their failed.com called English Town, which had been in Boston and they had raised money for it. And they decided in the, in the, at the, the crash of the IT industry or the dot-com bubble, that they would make it for profit and move it to closer to what they thought were the big markets would be in East Asia. And so I joined in Hong Kong in a sort of marketing position to help establish that. Our big market was Japan, but we still had a little office here in mainland China. Uh, and there were sort of franchise schools in the EF brand, but there was very limited work. Uh, and there was no real business in China. We couldn't figure out what to do with China. So that's how I first ended up in China or in, mm -hmm. in Hong Kong at the time. Yeah. If you can recall, so you've been here for a while, right? So you, mm -hmm. you see early days at 2000 plus. Um, if, you, if you can think about two, three, five big changes that you, you've seen over these years, mm -hmm. right? Shanghai then, or China then, and China now. Yeah, I think the big difference is, um, well, in, in my field of uh, online marketing, so I was in content marketing mainly, and in early, so EF got its license in 2005 for education. So then we decided, we defined, we decided to make this product, or I didn't, but someone did, <laughs> decided to make a product that was a blended version of the franchise schools and the online product that I worked on. We called it Smart, and the first one we opened in Shanghai on People's Square. And then, uh, and that was, I think it was 2005. 
and then uh, we decided, the company decided to put in a ton of money because China is going to be the growth market. So this is when I really entered China. Before that, I just happened mm -hmm. to be in China. We had programmers here, we had 100 people, I think, in greater China. But my, our markets were Japan and Brazil and Europe. Um, but then, then everything changed. So uh, at this time, the online marketing, which is what I worked on, was very cheap and very underdeveloped which was good for us because we knew how to do it. So it was, we could buy the traffic, it was so cheap, it was unbelievable. And it was a lot like, it was very sort of naive in a way, yeah. which was a bit like, it was almost like uh, Wild West in, in the work, you know? Like, I remember we, first of all, the traffic, we went to MSN China when they opened and, and they're like, you cannot possibly charge this little for the traffic. It was virtually free because we had buying, we've been buying traffic in, China, in Japan. It was like, oh my God, this is, so we just started buying an enormous amount of traffic. And the other thing was that, you could, and like when Weibo started a few years later, they just gave us a quarter of a million followers. Here's an account, you know, just like that. And then someone came up with, let's make like pink umbrellas and give it to the traffic assistants in, in Shanghai. And someone just gave it to them and, without paying. And now the entire city of Shanghai was dressed in these pink umbrellas with our logo type on. So it was like, and I think someone convinced the, tra in the, the metro to, to call out and say, oh, here comes this and that station with the EF school. So it was really like a Wild West thing and everything was kind of cheap and free. Uh, and so as a concept, it was really fun to work with that. I wasn't, I wasn't just on an online one, but it was just be part of that was just amazing. And then, um, and then the brand went from completely unknown to in three years be the, the strongest brand in the country for, a, for an education. And the volumes were just amazing. I mean, NetEase told, told us once, that the, one of the emails that my team was sending was the largest emails in China. Like we, we reached more Chinese people every month than anyone else in the entire country with this email that my team produced. So it was really, really fun. And that obviously has completely changed. Yep. I think, you know, now online is super expensive. Uh, it's much, much, much harder. Another thing I think a big difference is that the average foreigner back then was not very good. <laughs> Because China still at the time had sort of low self-esteem and thought every foreigner knew everything better. So mm. we brought in, you could meet so many kind of loser foreigners here with jobs they shouldn't have and girlfriends they shouldn't have, mostly, you know. And that is all gone too, you know. Like now it's, if you're, if you're going to be a foreigner in China, it's really much, it requires a lot more, which, as it should, as it would in any developed nation but but that these things is is changed a lot the, yeah the big differences you spent 13 years with the with the EF mm -hmm. it's it's really long time what did it actually keep you there is it passion is it you know the, the mission of the company or, or team or, or good pay uh, well I don't like education so it's amazing that I stayed so long there I was like I really did not like education it's funny but I, the main reason was really the people it was just it was incredibly fun to work for. It's such, mm. they're so good at recruiting both smart and very social people. Because the actual company has been around for 50 years, is a, um, is a travel company. So it's a very much of a, like very social people. Uh, and they also have, so it's very, it's like fun. You do a lot of offsite and they're very generous to their staff. So you could, every, every offsite that conference was wherever in the world, like pick a place. We could like go to Sao Paulo, to Cape Town, to wherever, you know, London, and it was like the world was, and it was a, you're just very global. Mm -hmm. you're, all your colleagues were from all over the world. You're constantly right. in touch with everyone 24-7. It was it's really vibrant. So I really liked that part. I loved that part. And I met so many smart people. I remember when I joined and I was like, oh my God, everyone's so smart here. Everyone like came from Harvard and, 
you know, was just from Ivy League schools or had worked for McKinsey or whatever. It's just like, Jesus, this is amazing. That was really fun. And the other part was the growth. It was the, just being part of that crazy growth from, we went from 100 people to 8,000 people in some something like That's eight massive. years. Yeah, it was insane. So just, uh, you know, giving chances to a guy like me, I made, gave me sort of a vice president role. So, I mean, it was nothing special, but it was just meant that I was part of it. And I felt like this, I'm part of building this stuff. So it was really, it was like, it was a unicorn, but it's just that because it's a private company, nobody knew about it. But it was, I mean, I looked at our metrics, we were larger and we were faster than many of the unicorns. It's just the business press didn't know about it. So that is, of course, is fantastic to be part of such an experience. Yeah. How did you transition from, so you've been more on the content creating, content marketing, um, web, software. Mm -hmm. How did you transition to actually manufacturing the IoT device manufacturing? Uh, well, that was mainly because of, well, so, so back in the days when I was a visionary salesperson for internet, uh, you know, looking at those trajectories of how everything would be developing, the big thing was really going into internet of things, even though that was not the term back then. Uh, but you know, it was, if you think about it, what we were working on back in the 90s was really one very insignificant product, which is, uh, which is like uh, the PC. Right? So, uh, and then came the mobile phone. That's just two devices, the telephone and the PC. If you go back to pre-internet in the 90s, these are two very insignificant things. One is essentially a souped up typewriter and a, and, a, and a gaming device. The other is the telephone. So two devices were connected and the world just changed. So imagine, and I, I mean, this back early days, we could see what would happen when everything is connected, because obviously that was going to happen. So I've been sort of waiting for this IoT era. I thought it would come 10 years ago, and now it's starting. So for me, getting also tired of working just with PC and mobile, this is when the fun really begins, when everything, we go into sort of a Harry Potter world. So I really wanted to work on on other devices and building when you create things you want to work not just with those two devices but with everything internet can be omnipresent and that is from a creative perspective which is what I am mainly a creator is it's amazing it's like you've been given first you had one tool a PC then you were given a mobile tool that's two and now you're getting like everything everything is now being connected so it's just a fun a much more fun sort of thing but that poses challenges because now we have to understand physical devices which I had no experience in. So. And that leads to the next question. Um, tell me more about the Warm Company, Cooking Automation. Where does your inspiration coming from and um, what are you trying to achieve with the uh, device? Well, the basics is that, uh, going back to also my trajectory <laughs> and the visionary thing, is that I started lear learning to analyze businesses because that's what I was doing. What's going to happen next? So I felt, maybe I'm giving myself too much credit, but I felt like I could predict the podcast boom very early on, which I have on record actually, that I had male interaction with the people in, in uh -huh. the radio industry and, and banking with mobile payments. And, and so I felt like I, I wasn't alone in that, but just when you worked like that back in the days, you could, you could see where it's heading. Given bandwidth, of course, Blockbuster would go under. Of course, you're going to have something like Spotify eventually. I don't know what the name would be, but so now I'm, I've, I've had that confidence. Uh, and I look at so what's going to happen now with IoT. Well, Obviously, other industries are going to go the same way as the entertainment industry went and banking industry and newspaper industry. So what is the biggest industry in the world? Well, it's the food industry. The food industry is 16% of global GDP or something. And so I was like, that's where I'm going to work. I don't know what. <laughs> and then I looked closer at the industry and I saw how hopelessly bad they are at IT and how incredibly arrogant they are. They think that, especially kitchen appliance industry, they seem to think that they can get away with building a 
like a high-end Gaggenau album with a computer that looks like it's you know from the 70s. So anyway, that was where I started, picked that industry. And then I had an idea for what to do. I want to build a proper automation device to really solve cooking problems, which is not really to cook for yourself, but it's to eat better at home or, yeah. So, but you want me to describe the, what it yeah, is? Yeah, quickly, or? yeah, what is it? Oh, so it's just like, basically it's a device designed for a computer to, to cook food rather than taking what you now see in the IoT world, which is a, an a, 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 a oven made for humans that you put a computer on which won't, won't properly work. It's kind of like trying to make, take a car from built in the 50s and make it self-driving. You have to actually fundamentally build the, the oven or the device to be run by a computer. And so that's what we have done. So it's a very complicated machine uh, with tons of different, you can boil water in it, you can cook multiple things at the same time. It's extremely precise. Just make food perfect and then you press a button. It's kind of like the equivalent of a self-driving car but in the kitchen. Uh, yeah, it's. <laughs> Before we jump to the next company that you are running at the mm -hmm. moment, uh, can you please introduce a little bit uh, about the concept of uh, co-factory? Co because I think this is the new, not new concept, but lots of people don't know about it. Yeah, well, it's fairly new. There are some variations to it, but basically it's like a co-working space, but for factories. So like now when we're entering this IT era, all these companies now need to make very sophisticated uh, devices that need to they need to be su supplied by someone who acts more like an IT company. And so we provide a factory, we, build, we set up a factory, small, from 200 square meters, and we just put everything in there, staff, equipment, we handle it. Our customer can decide how much they want to do. And so if they want to have complete, con they have a complete control, obviously, but if they want to put their own manager in there, they can do that. And then we run the factory. So something in between having your own factory and working with an outsourced uh, contractor. So it's, yeah. I'm curious to know how did you land actually this deal? How did you manage to open the co-factory in, in Changzhou? Um, well, I was, I was like, I don't know. I think I made a pitch deck for this idea. I often have ideas and I just pitch them to, to because I think it's fun with ideas. And I wasn't really that interested in doing it. But people were very positive about this. One of our investors in my other company was like, do you have to do this, you know? So, and then Changzhou government, someone from there, I forget exactly how it happened, but they're like, whoa, we want to help with this. So I came over there, I met them, they were very supportive, and we, we got lots of help. So we decided, even though I originally wanted to set it up in Dongguan or Shenzhen, the Changzhou government was so much faster and very supportive. So then we was like, all right, let's just open it here. So we opened in January this year, uh, a factory and, and an office, and now we're building up our sales organization. Yeah, so that's the... Who are your typical clients? Uh, small uh, IoT startups and uh, for our factory deal, but that's not really started yet because of the borders are being shut. And then mid-sized mid companies for our R&D offer and our sourcing offer, which is what we have as well. What are the recent trends in manufacturing in China? And uh, what do you think if China is going to remain the factory of the world in the foreseen future? Uh, the biggest change is automation in the small to medium-sized factories. That's what's going to happen next. They're very, very simple at this point. So the biggest change, and that's what China really has to be, do, be able to do, is to, to automate or, or at least implement the operations program for small to medium-sized companies. The, big, the small ones cannot afford like the big systems from Oracle and IBM and so on. And the other is uh, that you need to treat the workers better because it's still manual for a long time and now all the workers are going to DD and, 
and all that. So there, there's a immediate shortage of workers, actually, which people never talk about. So, that, but I think China will continue because it's they're just superior in manufacturing, and all the suppliers are here. So it's going to be. A, I mean, we tried to make stuff in the U.S. It's just three times as more as expensive. It's just extremely hard because the electronic industry is here. It's not in the U.S. It's never been there. So yeah, China, East Asia will continue being dominant for a foreseeable future in this. Uh, yeah. And a quick follow-up question. Uh, so you you managed to open it in Chengzhou, right? Which mm -hmm. is super far from Shenzhen, and Shenzhen is or Guangzhou is famous mm -hmm. for manufacturing facilities yeah. for hardware. Mm -hmm. Do you think it's going to be a challenge for you to bring the manufacturing smaller companies to Chengzhou to to the area where? Not this, that famous uh, for, for manufacturing. It is, yeah, it is a bit challenged, but quickly people realize that the that you don't need to be like we do assembly, and the parts suppliers are to a large degree in the south, but there are also many here. But it's, it's not a practical difference in shipping from Shenzhen to to Shanghai or to Changzhou versus Shanghai to, or, or Shenzhen to Dongguan, Dongguan, mm. for example. It's super fast, so it doesn't stop anything. Uh, and Shangzhou has the advantage of being in the middle of the country. So if you ship to entire China, it's actually a, many companies use this for warehousing. Mm -hmm. So to have it at an assembly factory is actually a great location. But I, I agree. Originally, I was like, this isn't going to work. But I, now I, I think we're going to open in Dongguan eventually as well. But it's actually a very good location for logistics purposes. It's fantastic. So, yeah. When can we visit the factory? Uh, whenever you want, <laughs> you can come and visit. The so it's already open, and uh, uh, you're onboarding companies. We're building. We're building it now. They built a building, or we didn't build a building, but now we're the, in doing the internal. We were a bit delayed because of the extremely complex safety rules. Uh, like it's just we kept delaying and delaying because the, if something happens, I go to jail basically. So I'm super paranoid about like everything has to be detailed, and you get like conflicted messages all the time. So we have to get like lawyers involved and. We have, I think we're two months delayed because of this. So we're, we're now we're starting to build our factory. And I think the onboarding depends entirely on when the borders open because we've been selling in Europe. But we're going to start opening the China market now. And I think that will then we can move companies in sooner than, than when the borders open. So we will see. We're, we're starting sales in China in, in, now in August. So we shall see how that goes. But. Thank you, Rasmus. Thank you very much. I wish the best of luck to the company and Thank have you. as many startups as possible in the near future. Thank you. And I'm going to visit definitely um, probably next interview we're going to do actually at the factory Absolutely. so people can <laughs> see the space and uh, if they like to join the um, company. Thank you so much. That mm -hmm. was uh, In China Between Meetings with Rasmus Rasmussen, uh, CEO and founder of Worm and Leveworks. Uh, please uh, like, share and comments and uh, we see you next time.